0: Hello, welcome to the New Books in History podcast. I am your host, Ari Barbalat. Today, it is my sincere blessing to be in dialogue with Matteo Milan regarding his newly published book, The Black Shirt's Dictatorship, Armed Squads, Political Violence, and the Consolidation of Mussolini's Regime, published in New York by Routledge Publishers 2022. Matteo, I'm lucky to be with you. Thank you so much for our time together.
1: Thank you very much, Ari, for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here today.
0: Please, can you kindly tell us about yourself? Where did you grow up? What formative events in your life inspired the scholar you are today?
1: Uh, yes, it'll, it's a pleasure. So I was born and raised uh, in Padua, actually in the outskirts uh, of the city. Uh, I did my uh, bachelor degree and my master degree and my PhD here at the University of Padua. So this was, uh, under certain aspects, a very traditional Italian career uh, at that time. Uh, I, I think Italian scholars and students didn't move too much uh, at that time. Um, during my PhD, I did. I carried out a research on uh, the Black shirts, which basically then resulted in the Italian version of this book. Uh, but after the PhD, uh, I got a great opportunity that, uh, under certain aspects, changed uh, my career. I applied for a, a, mm, a fellowship um, funded by the Garda Henkel Foundation, which is this very important uh, a scientific and uh, academic foundation uh, in Germany, uh, for a scheme which was called Marie Curie Co-Fund, which basically allowed me to spend two years at the University of Oxford in uh, Britain. And this was a very, very important uh, moment for my career. I worked there under the supervision of a colleague and a friend now, uh, Martin Coway, and uh, uh, I work on a project which was uh, a little bit different from my previous project on the Black Shirt. Basically, it was a project aiming at studying um, armed associations and groups uh, in Europe before the First World War during the so called Belle Epoque. And at that time, I focused uh, basically on Italy, Spain, and France. Uh, Working with Martin Conway was a great opportunity for me, as he is an expert of post-Second World War uh, Europe, uh, while at that time I was studying a period which was um, basically between the uh, end of the 19th century and the early 20th century. So I was working with a scholar focusing on a much later period, and this was actually Uh, a great opportunity to open my mind, to uh, absorb different uh, scholarships and different approaches to uh, modern history. Um, After Oxford, I moved to Dublin, where I spent almost a a year, uh, 10 months or so, at the uh, Center for War Studies at the University College Dublin. with a project which was a little bit of the prosecution, an extension of my pre- previous project. Uh, and in Dublin, I worked with uh, one of the leading scholar of uh, paramilitarism and political violence uh, in uh, um, the interwar period, who is Robert Gerbert. And uh, also in this case, it, it was really formative, really, really important for my career. Basically one week uh, after I landed in Dublin. I got the news that um, my application for a major European um, grant—it's called European Research um, Grant—funded by the European Research Council. Uh, This uh, major, my application was uh, retained for funding, and basically, uh, I got a very important uh, grant to carry out research on pre-1914 armed associations uh, um, in Central and Western Europe. So basically this project uh, was uh, in some way a spin-off, uh, a prosecution of the project that they originally started in Oxford. Um, getting this project was quite demanding uh, at the time, uh, but uh, it was also extremely rewarding as it allowed me to come back to Italy and to come back to Padova, actually, where my uh, partner was uh, living at that time. Uh, so thanks to this project, I got a permanent position here at the University of Padova. A permanent position that uh, I have since uh, 2016, actually, uh, indeed, as a uh, as an assistant professor, and I carried out this major projects, uh, creating a research group, a research team, uh, till a, a couple of years ago, and a few months ago, uh, finally I got a second uh, European Research Council uh, Consolidator Grant for a new project. Or uh, maybe there will be opportunity to to, to discuss uh, this later on for a new project on gun control and gun cultures uh, in Europe between eighteen uh, seventies and the nineteen seventies. So. Uh, I think that my career uh, was a a little bit bizarre under certain aspects, as the first part of my career was really traditional. I was basically rooted uh, here at the University of Padua, but at the same time, I had the opportunity to expand my uh, network, to expand my uh, skills and knowledge and scholarship thanks to um, important fellowship and grants that I got basically from the uh, European Union. Uh, so I think that my re- profile as a researcher in some way reflects these two uh, dimensions, one which was very local, so to speak, and another which is uh, much broader. Um, and really happy of this uh, profile that I was able to establish uh, in the last, 15 years or so.
0: What inspired you to write this book? What message do you hope to convey to readers?
1: Um. Yeah, the book is the result of the research that I carried out during my uh, PhD uh, here at the University of Power. Basically, the books uh, originated from a very simple intuition. Um, so basically... Um, the great amount of scholarship on fascist black shirts, on fascist squadrismo, focus on the period before the March on Roll. So the period before Mussolini became the head of the government uh, in Italy, basically before October, 1922. Uh, fascisti, uh, fascists call this period the period of the revolution. Uh, it was a period uh, in which squadristi carried out uh, Uh, multiple very violent actions which left uh, about between 2,000 and 3,000 people dead uh, in Italy uh, between 1919 and the end of 1922. It was therefore a period marked by violence in which black shirts played a major role and had um, a very, very important uh, role in making Mussolini the head of the government, and basically starting uh, a 20-year uh, dictatorship. So it's pretty obvious that scholars uh, focus on this period. And it, it was a period in which black shirt played, uh, again, a very, very important role. They were major political actors, and in some way they were able to shape the political action and the political agenda of fascism. So my idea when I started my research and then when I started writing this book was to study uh, what happened next. So from the perspective of a black shirt, uh, you are um, very aware that you played a major role in allowing Mussolini to become the head of the government in making fascists a regime, a political regime, a very institutionalized and solid political regime. At the same time, all the violence that you displayed in the periods before the March of Rome, after the beginning of the fascist government, basically, all this violence was considered similar uh, to criminal activity. So this kind of violence, and also the paramilitary organization that the fascists were able to establish, basically was no more needed in uh, the new context of Mussolini government. So my idea was to try to look at uh, what happened after the March of Rome to all these people. And we are speaking of uh, thousands and thousands of violent, angry uh, people, uh the black shirts or squadristi actually, uh who were very, very aware of the importance that they played in making uh fascists. A successful uh, political movement. Um, So I I, I approach this topic from different angles, and I I think there will be opportunity to speak about that. And the book is precisely uh, an attempt to look at the long durée, the long-term consequences of fascist violence throughout the fascist regime and after the um seize of power by the fascists in october nineteen twenty two.
0: What are the primary themes in your book? What story does your book tell? Uh
1: the book tells the story of uh, uh squadristi of these people very uh used to uh perform uh violence in a context in a political context in which uh Fascists hold the power, but in which, at least officially, violence was not tolerated anymore. Uh, I approach the, uh, the theme uh, of the book from different angles, from different perspectives. I focus on how the fascist squad, the armed squads which developed uh, in the period before the March of Rome, how they uh, transformed themselves uh, after the martial law. Uh, many of them became sporting uh, sport teams, others became some kind of mutual aid associations, others became uh, and turned into the so called fascist militia, which was a paramilitary auxiliary police force which was funded by the state. Uh, so we can say that squadrismo continued after the martial war, but also it changed uh, and it assumed other forms uh, in the process. I also look at the uh, black shirts who were sent to internal uh, exile because they were deemed to be like criminals, um, internal uh, enemies. They were sometimes compared to anti-fascists. But why? Because actually they continued to perform violence in a time in which officially, at least, violence was no more tolerated. So I think that you should understand a very simple fact. Um, After the March of Rome, Mussolini was no more the leader of a, a political party, But he became the head of the government and at the same time the Minister of Interior. So he became responsible for public order, he became responsible for uh, social, political peace in the country. So in some way, he was the father, uh, the political uh, leader of fascism, which built its own success on violence. But in a matter of weeks, uh, violence was no more tolerated. If fascists performed violent actions after the March of War, basically they were compared to criminals. Because fascist Mussolini was now in charge of securing the country, of enforcing uh, law and order uh, throughout the country. So you have this black and white uh, situation, which many of the former Blackshirts actually didn't fully uh, understand. Why I was a hero of the revolution? Why Mussolini asked me to kill people? Why fascists wanted my violent actions in order to seize power? And now I'm considered like a criminal or uh, actually an anti-fascist because I'm acting against fascism. So you have this very strong um, contraposition within fascism and especially within the shock drops of fascism, within squadrismo. And the books want to investigate these contradictions because actually one of the main arguments of the book is that uh, fascist violence after the March of Rome was, yes, officially uh, um, condemned. Uh, by uh, Mussolini and other fascist leaders but at the same time it was necessary uh Mussolini's regime needed uh squadristi's violence but at the same time Mussolini wanted that former squadristi uh now they they need to be disciplined uh they n- need to be obedient to uh, Mussolini and the reason why fascist violence was necessary was that uh, Mussolini and other fascist leader seized power in October, November 1922. But basically, they didn't control the souls, the conscious of Italians. So fascist and its balance was necessary basically to show that. Uh, The fascist regime was there, and it was there to continue across years. So fascist violence was there to show that no opposition was possible within the fascist regime. And this, in my opinion, and according to other scholars as well, uh, contributed to uh, create the preconditions uh, of consensus uh a consensus and consent to uh fascism in the uh in the following years
0: what is your book's contribution to the study of comparative fascism
1: oh yes um uh, i think that my book focus on italy uh for sure uh is it focuses basically only on the in the Italian uh, on the Italian regime but it also makes some kind of contribution to other um fields of scholarship in i, I would say two ways so the first way is related to the role that black shirts played in other uh european conflicts especially in the 1930s and I'm referring to the uh, so-called Abyssinian War and the uh, civil war in Spain. Especially uh, related to this second conflict, the the Spanish Civil War, former squadristi who fought during the so-called fascist revolution, so before 1922, actually were used uh, by the fascist regime as organizer of paramilitary groups also during the Spanish uh, civil war of course they fought on the side of general francisco franco they fought on the side of nationalists uh, in that conflict uh, they fought as part of a officially uh, volunteer army that mussolini sent to spain in support of franco Uh, In particular, in my book, I focus on uh, a very interesting uh, squadrista, a figure of squadrista, called named uh, Arconovaldo Bonacorsi. He is from Bologna, and for his entire career, basically, he uh, had just one job, uh, the squadrista. So, for his entire career, he was a a member of the shock troop fascist. Uh, he also had a sort of a secondary job, officially, I mean, he was an attorney, but basically he used violence and intimidation and threat and menace also uh, when uh, acting as an attorney in the civil processes uh, and trials and so on and so forth. Uh, anyway, at the beginning of the Spanish Civil War, Mussolini sent Bonacorsi to the Balea- Balearic Island, and there he organized Uh, a paramilitary group, which basically spread death and terror uh, in the island and played a very, very important role in securing the nationalist, meaning Francoist, um, power into uh, the island. Actually, this originated also a lot of conflict between Italians and uh, Spanish nationalists, but I think that Bola Corsi, uh, it's a very important figure and um, actors also in connection with <coughs> uh, scholarship on the Spanish Civil War. Um, the second aspect uh, through which this book uh, contributed to uh, the study of um, uh, comparative fascism is more general. Uh, I think that the book makes an important contribution to study uh, what happened after uh, so called revolutionary uprising. So, what happened to the diehard shock drops once they seized power? I think it's a very important uh, issue in current scholarship. Um, it's an issue that has not been very well investigated, uh, perhaps. Um, as many scholarship, we are used to think that once they have seized power, the the die hard, the more violent sectors of revolutionary movements tend to be absorbed uh, into the regime that they contributed to create. But I think this is a quite simplistic uh, pictures, and as my book show, violence played a very important role also uh, in Italian fascism. And here I would like to say a final thing uh, regarding this question, as I think that for a long period, uh, the Italian fascist regime was considered by many scholars, starting from Anna Harald, uh, but also other scholars, was considered as a quite mild regime, of course, compared to uh, the Nazi regime in Germany. Um, a Spanish uh, scholar Javier Rodrigo defined this reduction uh, and Hitler rule, which is basically reduction to Hitler, so to speak. It's a Latin um phrase. Uh, so basically, Nazism uh acted as a sort of a black hole and absorbed all the violence, uh, so to speak, uh, that was uh going on in Europe in the interwar period. This contributed to uh see the Italian fascist regime as a generally a mild, non-violent uh regime, at least compared to <coughs> sorry compared to nazi germany uh and my book uh, i think contributed to show that uh the fascist regime was actually a violent regime even after the March rule uh that violence played a major role uh in the fascist regime but at the same time such kind of violence was in some way generally Italian. so was a form of violence that was peculiar to the fascist regime. It was less little, but it was extremely widespread and uh, uh, I think it contributed to change and to influence uh, not only uh, political institutions, not only uh, political parties, uh, but also it contributed to change and influence the consciousness and the souls of Italians.
0: What is specifically meant by the term squadrismo? Can you explain this term for beginners and laypersons, and for people who might not be familiar with Italian history? Yeah,
1: uh, thanks for uh, the question. Um, Probably I I should have explained uh, at the beginning, but squadrismo is a quite difficult term to translate into uh, English. Basically squadrismo means the um, organization, but also the political cultures of the movement of the fascist armed squads which operated in Italy after uh, the foundation of fascism in 1919. Um, So by Squadrismo we mean all the people who acted and performed violent acts as members of the paramilitary wing of the fascist party. But also we mean the political cultures that move uh, these people, they believe in the uh, supremacy and the central role of the nation, uh, the hate towards uh, the so-called subversive, uh, meaning socialist, communists, Bolsheviks, but also the hate and anger against the liberal regime, the traditional elites uh, in Italy. So by squadrismo, we mean a lot of things. And again, it's a term, that uh, has usually been uh used for the period before the martial rule. So before fascism seized uh power uh in Italy. But at the same time, as I hope the book uh shows, it's a term that had a very long story uh throughout the fascist regime and uh, um uh until at least the 1945 and maybe even uh later
0: what new insights are presented in your study regarding the march on Rome in 1922
1: yeah um the march on Rome was in some way uh a very in many ways it was a very major foundational uh event for the uh for fascism um, the March on Rome was the beginning of uh, the fascist um, states of power, and the beginning basically of Mussolini's government. So now, also thanks to very important uh, contribution from colleagues, also from the University of Padua, like Giulia uh, Albanese, the March on Rome has, uh, has, is not considered anymore as the simple march to Rome. Uh, of the fascist wars in October 1922, but the March on Rome um, was also the systematic occupation uh, of um, many, many cities uh, throughout northern and central Italy in the days immediately before uh Mussolini took power um in uh, uh in the late uh, October 1922 so the contribution of my book to this complex uh event uh is i think twofold on the one side i show in the book that for many squadristi the revolution was not ended with uh, the appointment of Mussolini as head of the government, but actually that act was the beginning of the revolution. For many so for the more radical section, for the more radical wing of the fascist party, the revolution just started with Mussolini in power as prime minister uh, of the Italian government, uh, because a lot of people wanted to get rid of the uh, traditional liberal elite with the king, some of them, they wanted a true revolution and they believe that sh- this revolution uh, cannot result simply in a sort of uh, traditional political agreement um, and in a coalition government as uh, Mussolini, first Mussolini government actually was. Um, the second aspect, the, which is I think much more important that my book investigates is that for many um uh, the March wrong Rome was also um, the, uh, a turning point in their personal life. So I think that the book combines a more institutional uh, dimension, the dimension of squadrismo as a collective movement and a collective political culture, and combine this with a very personal insights uh, in the lives of many squadristi, so a more individual dimension. And I think that to understand to fully understand squadrismo after the of rule, we should take into consideration these two aspects a more general one, a more institutional one, a more collective one, and a more individual aspect. And I I think that from this perspective, the martial role was not only a political turning point for the squadristi, but it was also a a personal, uh, individual uh, turning point for many of them, which basically changed their life, pushed them to adapt to a very new uh, situation that I uh, I have tried to describe in my previous answers. Um, there is then perhaps a third aspect actually, uh, which is the fact that um, traditional scholarship, and I'm thinking to uh, a very, very important historian, uh, who wrote a major and uh, seminal uh Mussolini's uh biography Renzo De Felice Renzo De Felice actually stated that uh the real actual fascist regime started only in January 1925 so uh more than two years after the March of Rome. Why January 1925? Because uh, the the 3rd of January 1925, Mussolini gave a very important speech in the parliament in which basically he uh, took full responsibility for the murder of the leader of uh, anti-fascist opposition, uh, Giacomo Matteotti, who was killed by some fascists uh, six months before, so in June 1924. According to De Felice and this traditional interpretation, uh, only from this moment on uh, fascists became a true dictatorship. The period between the martial role and early January 1925 was considered not so different from a continuation of the previous liberal uh, government or the previous liberal regime. So Mussolini was the head of the government, but things, according to De Felice, were not so different from a, a previous uh, government under, say, uh, traditional leaders like Giovanni Giolitti or um, Luigi Falta Actually I think that my book shows that things were very different and I believe along with other historians and hopefully not alone in this that the fascist regime actually started in uh October 1922 started with the march on Rome uh, and it started with the first um laws um, regulations and decrees Uh, passed by the first Mussolini's government. Curiously, some of these first measures that Mussolini, Mussolini's government took in the first week after uh, taking power, uh, some of these measures were actually um, had a lot to do with squatterismo. And I just mentioned here the so-called Ovilio's, uh amnesty, or Ovilio's pardon, and the creation of uh, uh, the fascist militia, uh, the national militia for... Uh, uh, the volunteer militia for national security.
0: Who were the Benito Mussolini regime's primary victims? What happened to them?
1: Oh, yes. Uh, this is a complicated question. Uh, so, my... Uh, a, a very important scholar of uh, uh, fascist and uh, um, Nazi uh, regime and paramilitary groups, Sven Rijka, uh claim, and I totally agree with him, that uh, fa- Italian fascists and uh, Nazis are different uh, under many aspects, of course, but uh, regarding the role of paramilitary troops, are different. Um because many of the victims of Italian fascists uh were before the martial of Rome, so before Mussolini uh took power and seized power, and the opposite happened with the Nazi regime. So very few victims before nineteen twenty uh, nineteen thirty-three, many, many victims after. Uh, the seizure of power uh, by uh, Hitler in uh, January 1933. So the victims of squadristi uh, uh, of black shirts of fascists were mainly uh, anti fascists, uh, meaning socialists and communists and some uh, member of the Catholic Party. There were also simple, you know, ordinary people, bystanders who were involved in uh, fascist violent action. And uh, people tend to forget that uh, Mussolini's action uh, squads killed between 2,000 and 3,000 people between uh, 1920 and uh, 1922. This was one of the most violent, perhaps the most violent period in modern uh, Italian uh, story. And it's something that is not very present, in my opinion, uh, among the general public. Uh, So many of the victims of fascist regime were killed. Um, Between again, 2,000, 3,000 people were killed before the March of Rome. Few hundreds were killed after the March of Rome, and I, I focus on uh, a little bit on these victims also uh, in my book. One of the aspects that I think that the book stress is that this is perhaps sad to say, but the death toll doesn't explain the uh, extension um, and how pervasive was fascist violence. In Italy, both before and after the March of Rome. What I'm trying to say is that, along with uh, a brutal uh, assassination of many people, uh, or many opponents to fascism, but also, again, by standards and ordinary people as well, uh, along with all these people killed by fascists, there were thousands and thousands of people which were simply wounded. Some of them were mutilated um, because of fascist violence, uh, they were beaten up, uh, they were shoted. they were uh, wounded, yeah, sometimes in a very, very brutal way. And many of these people uh, with, uh, who were uh, wounded or mutilated actually uh, uh, died uh, several months or years after uh, the uh, original beating and the, the, the original uh, violence that were uh, performed, uh, that was performed against them. So today, unfortunately, we don't have a really clear picture of the extension and uh, capillarity of fascist uh, violence in Italy. Uh, both before and after the Marshall Rule, uh, so I think that again, as I mentioned before, uh, this is really important because I think that we should understand the specificities and uh, the uh, peculiar features of uh, squadristi violence, meaning the, the, the peculiarities of fascist Italian fascist uh, violence, which was really different. Uh, from uh, Nazi uh, virus.
0: How bad was Benito Mussolini? How does your study help answer this question?
1: Wow. Well, um, so, Mussolini, uh, I think, was a very, um, uh, so to speak, I mean, to, to, to answer it straightforwardly uh, to your question, was a, a very bad person, of course. Though he was always very uh, careful not being involved directly with violence, so Mussolini—it's very hard to find, you know, episodes of Mussolini with uh, a revolver in his hands, killing people, shooting at the opponents, so to speak. But as many dictators, he was of course responsible of major. Uh, episodes of uh, uh, violence, of very violent campaigns, which were unleashed by fascist uh, troops, by the Italian army, especially during the Second World War. And also, this is very important that this has been investigated in the recent years. Uh, the fascist regime was extremely brutal, extremely violent. Um, in colonial campaigns, first in Libya and then in uh, Ethiopia, uh, in which the Italian army and fascist troops use poison uh, gas, use uh, mm, built concentration camps, use uh, violence, indiscriminated violence against civilians. Of course, in the colonial context, uh, a lot of uh, um, It's a very complex uh, context. Of course, racial uh, bias and racial uh, discrimination played a major role in legitimizing and in some way authorizing this kind of violence. But this violence, and there are documents on that, was ordered in many cases, uh, in the great majority of cases, actually, was ordered by Mussolini himself. He had no hesitation in ordering uh, his troops uh, to uh, perform very, very violent acts. Uh, And I think that even in the 1920s, when fascism was not involved. In major colonial campaigns, well, there is the exception of Libya, which is, of course, really, really important in this period. But also, I mean, in the in the domestic sphere, Mussolini was had no hesitation in using uh, violence. As many historians have shown, I just mentioned Mauro Canali, uh, he he uh, had a major responsibility. In the uh, murder of Giacomo Matteotti, was basically the leader of the opposition in uh, the murder happening in June 1924. Uh, regarding squadristi, uh, more specifically, uh, I think that Mussolini uh, played again a very important role, as he was uh, had a very contradictory uh, position. So publicly, he always condemned uh, fascist violence against the civilians. I'm speaking after the... the, the, the I'm referring to the, to the period after the March of Rome. But in private, he always had uh, Spadristi to get away uh, with uh, criminal um, trials, with uh, um, imprisonment and so on and so forth. Because as he actually said once, he needed uh, a violent and uh, obedient um, group of people who was ready to use violence to defend uh, fascists and to defend Mussolini himself.
0: Can you explain the concept squadrismo as a sport? This oh, yeah. um, is presented I, I, at length in the book. Can you elaborate on what it means and what you're trying yeah. to teach us through this concept?
1: Yeah. Um, in the book, I, I devoted one chapter, uh, almost one chapter, to uh, squadrismo as a sport. Um, and again, this has basically two meanings. The first one is the more immediate one. Um, after the March of Rome, Squadrismo became officially, at least, illegal. So what happened to many armed squads? Basically, they turned into uh, sport teams. uh, Football and soccer uh, teams uh, were uh, full of squadristi. They were not very good in playing soccer, uh, but uh, it was some kind of a way to disguise the, uh, the former uh, armed schools. Basically, they changed their name, but they uh, continued to perform very violent acts against uh, opponents or even sometimes against other fascists. Um, so, in, in the book, I gave multiple examples. One of that is uh, the, uh, an example from Genova, from the city and hordes of Genova, and is the so called Squadra Vola, Vola after the name of a fascist who was uh, killed in action. Uh, originally, the the, the Vola uh, squad was actually a, a, a part of the armed squad of fascism, but after the March of Rome, it began, uh, became a sort of uh, sporting Um, team, it was eventually absorbed into one of the uh, most important, in some way it still exists, uh, teams, uh, soccer teams of uh, the uh, city of Genova, Um, but actually they were not very good as I mentioned before uh, in playing soccer, as it was an opportunity to hide the violent potential of fascist sport under, you know, this sort of idea of a sport association, a sport team, and so on and so forth. So it was a way through which Squadrismo continued his life across the uh, Mussolini's dictatorship. This is perhaps the most obvious aspect. The second aspect uh, has much more to do with the individual uh, dimension of violence for many squadristi. So, uh, many historians, starting from uh, Emilio Gentile uh, and Sven Rijka uh, again, stress uh, a very important fact, in my opinion. So, violence performed by the squadristi was not simply a kind of violence uh, carried out to achieve political aims. Violence for the squadristi was important in itself, was a way of showing their courage, their masculinity, Uh, it was a way to keep the group uh, together. It was a way to make sense, under certain aspects, to the lives of these individuals. It was also uh, a fun, was something funny, it was something uh, nice for these people. It was actually like a sport. Uh, Committing violence was morally uh, legitimated for the members of the fascist vote, Uh, and it was therefore, for many of them, uh, was not something bad, but was something nice. It was a way to uh, impose uh, themselves and their political cultures. And this is true, I think, also after the March of Rome. And in many of these uh, uh, sports teams, uh, like uh, action squad, armed squads, uh, I believe that uh, squadristi continued to perform violence. As a sport.
0: In what ways was Benito Mussolini's consolidation of power in Italy similar to and different from Francisco Franco's in Spain and Adolf Hitler's in Germany?
1: Okay, uh, so the one very uh, important aspect is the way through which the three dictators uh, took power. Uh, in my opinion, as I mentioned before, uh, Mussolini took power after a period uh, which was marked and characterized by extremely high levels of violence for a country uh, which was not um, destroyed in its institution. So we have a legitimate government in Italy at that time, We had police forces, we have an army, all institutions were more or less working in that period. Um, And this is why the notion, the concept of civil war applied to uh, Italy in the period 1920-1922 is quite controversial and there is no agreement among uh, historians. The German case was really different, as Hitler... Was able to create a a major electoral and political consensus around its own movement before becoming uh, first chancellor and then president of uh, Germany. We should remember that at the moment of the uh, March on Rule, there were more or less, uh, less, a little bit more than 30. Uh, members of parliament, fascist members of parliament in the Italian uh, lower uh, house. So a very, very small number of fascists were MPs, uh, representatives in uh, in the Italian parliament. So fascism at that time didn't have electoral uh, consensus, didn't have political uh, power in the sense of uh, support uh, gained through uh, elections. And this is why, according to Reichard, Sven Reichard, violence played a much more important role in Italy uh, uh, than in Germany um, in the size of power, uh, there, therefore in the size of power by Mussolini uh, compared to uh, Hitler. The Spanish case and uh, uh, the case of Francisco Franco is again uh, different, as Franco was able to become dictator uh, only after a very, very brutal, violent, and uh, um, uh, very uh, terrifying civil war which lasted for three years. So. The Spanish Civil War was an actual civil war. I think that there is no uh, doubt about that, and the, the number of people, like casualties, people what, who was who uh, were killed and uh, injured uh, during the civil war was much much higher compared to Italy. Um, and this is why during the Spanish Civil War, paramilitary organization, similar under certain aspects to the fascist world, played, after all, a quite uh, minor role uh, in allowing Franco to uh, seize power. Of course, there was like the Falange and the other movements, but basically the civil war was a fought between regular armies. And again, this is something pretty different uh, compared to uh, Italy, in which the battle uh, and the main struggle was among uh, uh, party militia, like the fascist party and its uh, opponent, the, the the socialists. Of course, things change pretty much and prettyly tragically uh, after uh, the seizure of power, as as we all know, uh, the German dictatorship became a very uh, brutal and, uh, genocidial, uh, regime. Um, again, however, we should not, uh, we should not, uh, underestimate the impact of violence performed by, uh, the Italian fascist regime after the March on Rome. It was different, for sure, from the Nazi one, But it was also really peculiar, and generally speaking, I think it was much more violent than uh, the general public, sometimes also some historians, usually think.
0: What does your book teach us about prisons and police in fascist Italy?
1: Oh, yeah. Um, I think that the book shows that um, police forces, and I mean the official state police forces, like state police, uh, carabinieri, and others, uh were not the only actors to enforce law and order and to carry out uh violent action against opponents in the fascist regime. So after nineteen twenty-two. I think that my book showed pretty well that on the one side you have these official uh forces, which were state forces, that uh since the 1922 uh, actually, immediately after the march of Rome, were controlled now by fascist leaders. Uh... So on the one side you have the police forces, the traditional police forces, and on the other side you have this kind of informal policing carried out by the fascist walls. It was informal, it was unofficial but it existed throughout the fascist dictatorship. So on the one side, uh, you have official repression, but on the other side, you have this underground, unofficial, low-level series of intimidations, violent acts, which were performed and carried out by fascist squadristi throughout the duration of the fascist regime. Sometimes the two forms of violence uh, interacted. Just a short example. Um, it was pretty common for political opponents to be sent to jail uh, by ordinary tribunals, by the special tribunals, but also it was some kind of political uh, tribunal uh, in Italy, but also they were sent to internal exile and so on and so forth. So there was this very uh, broad and articulated uh, repressive police uh, regime operating pretty well, especially after 1925 and 1926 in Italy. But again, this was only the official uh, side of repression in Italy. So it was pretty common that after an opponent was released from uh, jail, from internal uh, exile, the so-called confino di polizia, he was not only followed by police forces, but it was often beaten, intimidated, uh, uh, harassed by blackshirts and other squadristi. So this uh, unofficial, informal uh, way of repression was crucial. In intimidating, in repressing, not simply explicit political opponents, uh, but also in showing that no alternative was possible to fascists for these people. So even if the state doesn't <coughs> uh, repress, <coughs> yeah. sorry, even if the state doesn't uh, carry out official repression, <laughs> Sorry, Now uh, Even if the state doesn't carry out official repression, there were always some black shirts willing to intimidate, willing to uh, beat up, uh, to uh, harass uh, political opponents and sometimes also ordinary citizens. So I think that the book shows pretty well the complementarity between. Black shirts, violence uh, and police uh, repression.
0: Can you explain the phenomenon of confino di polizia? Yes. Can... specifically happened to somebody?
1: Yeah. Okay. Uh, confino di polizia uh, can be translated um, with uh, internal exile, perhaps. Again, it's an Italian word and institution that is not easy to translate into English. So I will try to explain how it works. Um, so basically it was introduced in November, 1926 by the fascist government. And it was a way to send people to very far away places, uh, compared to where they were living. Um, and it was basically a way to keep, uh, Away from their own home, home uh, their own cities and familiar contexts, basically political opponents. It was very different from a criminal trial, as you, um, as the uh, defendant didn't have uh, right. lawyers. Uh, the, the, there was actually uh, there was not an ordinary uh, trial. But basically, uh, there was a commission, the so-called uh, Commissione Provinciale per il Confino di Polizia, Provincial Commission for uh, Confino di Polizia, which was formed by the prefect, the uh, chief of police in a, provi- in a province, um, uh, and uh official from the fascist militia. And they basically... Uh, they decide where and for how long to send someone to uh, Confino di Polizia. So basically there was no trial uh, because, and this is I think a crucial point, To in order to be sent to uh, Confino di Polizia it was not necessary that someone committed an actual crime. You may be simply a suspect of carrying out anti-fascist activities of subversive activities. Police arrive in your own house, they put into jail for quite a long period sometimes. In the meantime, this commission decides whether or not you were guilty of anti-fascist activities, anti-national activities, and so on and so forth. And in the many, many cases, you were found guilty and you were therefore sent to very, very uh, isolated places, usually in southern Italy or in Sardinia or even in small islands. The th- interesting thing that my book investigates is that uh, also some of the former black shirts. Were sent to internal exile. They were sent to Confino di Polizia. Why? Because they were considered as opponent to the fascist regime. They were considered enemies of the fascist regime. They were considered basically uh, criminals or troublemakers. They were considered hooligans. They were considered indisciplined people. Um, why they were considered such? Because basically they carried out and continued to perform violent acts. The funny thing is that many of these violent actions were not simply the results of the uh, of these people, but it was the result of orders by fascist leaders, provincial and sometimes national fascist leaders. So these quadristi were carried out uh, violent actions, because they were ordered to do so by fascist leaders, again in a context and in a period in which violence was no more tolerated by fascists, but it was nevertheless necessary for the reason that I explained uh, a few minutes ago. So many of these squadristi were sent to political uh, exile to uh, confino di Polizia. But in many cases, they were released immediately after they were condemned, so after a few weeks. From my perspective, it was extremely interesting to look at the documents and the records in the archives um, of these people, because, you know, you have personal files which are full of letters, of personal letters by former black shirts, in which they tell their mother, their family, as well as they tell Mussolini himself how brave they were, how violent they were, and what fascism and what uh, squadrismo meant for them. So I think that these are extraordinary uh, documents to uh, extremely useful, extremely fascinating to understand what meant to be a black shirt, to be a squadrista for uh, these people. And so I I was really happy when I had the chance to uh, find this document, which are pretty new. They um, they have never been studied in a systematic way uh, before. Uh, Of course, there is, uh, again, uh, much more work to do. Uh, perhaps, and I hope that other historians will work on such kind of records but again they are extremely fascinating to show both how the fascist regime actually worked and how squadristi perceive themselves within this regime.
0: Can you explain the origins and meaning of the term black shirts?
1: Oh Yeah um, mm, so black shirts uh, is basically a synonymous for uh, squadristi, and the other certain aspect is a synonymous for fascist. Um, the origin came from the experience of the First World War. During the First World War, the Italian uh, shock troops, the so-called Arditi, used to wear a black shirt, actually. Um, was part of the uniform. This was also used after the conclusion of the war by uh, the so-called legionari, who were basically the people under the command of the poet and former soldier Gabriele D'Annunzio during uh, the Fuma crisis uh, 19, 19, 19, And basically the fascists took inspiration, so to speak, both from the Italian shock troops and uh, D'Annunzio's troops uh, for their own uniform. The nice thing, interesting thing, curious thing perhaps, is that the black shirt became, you know, a very common uh, part of partial uniform quite later on. We don't, uh, I mean, we shouldn't imagine uh, and think Of young squadristi carrying out violence actions, uh, wearing the black shirt. Usually, these black shirts were made of silk, so they were pretty expensive. So they basically uh, used to uh, wear the black shirts only for official. Uh, occasions for official uh, ceremonies, uh, during funerals, during public meetings, during parades, uh, um, uh, and, and so on and so forth. At least before the March of Rome, the black shirt was, you know, the, 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 the uniform for the important occasions, was not the uh, everyday uniform of the black shirts, despite the name.
0: And How does your study recontextualize Italy's invasion of Ethiopia and Italy's intervention in the Spanish Civil War.
1: Yeah, um I um in one of the final chapters of the book, I explore again the 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 as I mentioned, the biography of the Arconovaldo Bonacorsi, who was a very important, at least in my opinion, but those in some way, you know, very uh, representative squadristi, uh, squadrista, uh, squadrista um, in Italy, and uh, he uh, had um, he played a quite important role uh, during the Spanish Civil War, where he was sent by Mussolini to the Balearic Island, and there he organized a paramilitary uh, group uh, mm-hmm. called the Death Dragoons. Um, And it was responsible, uh, it was the main uh, perpetrators of several violent acts and uh, death uh, in the island. So what the book stressed is that uh, people with skills and a background as a squadristi became useful again for the fascist regime in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, But of course, he was also uh, sent some years later to uh, Ethiopia after the invasion uh, of the country, Uh, so basically a little bit before the uh, the outbreak of the Second World War. So he didn't play a major role during the invasion uh, of the country, but only later on after the, 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 the experience in Spain and again there he used the uh, his uh, skills that he had acquired uh, before the march of rome so between 1920 1922 he used the skills he used his background as a squadrista to perform violent actions during the second world war uh fighting uh in uh, Ethiopia And I think that under this aspect, there is a clear continuity between the experience of um, uh, violence before the on role and violence perpetrated by former squadristi, or maybe it would be more correct to say new squadristi. Um, during the spanish civil war as well as during the invasion of ethiopia and even the second world war but the book also offers other uh minor examples of this uh continuity and the involvement of uh, uh former squattery state in uh the spanish civil war and the uh, abyssinian War.
0: what is your book's contribution to the study of totalitarianism?
1: Uh, yeah, I, I think that, again, thanks for the question, it's a very, uh, it's a wonderful question and it's also quite complicated for me to answer, but I will try, nevertheless. Um, I think that uh, several scholars, scholars like Hannah and but also uh used to uh, define Italian fascism as a weak totalitarian regime. Not a fully accomplished, a fully uh, totalitarian regime. But it was, you know, something that aspired to be totalitarian, but it was never really totalitarian. And again, here, the main comparison is with uh, Germany and um, the Soviet regime in Russia. Uh, what the book, I think, uh, shows is that because of the very long role and very, very important role that violence played throughout the fascist dictatorship, not only in its initial phase, but throughout the 20-year duration of the fascist dictatorship, because of the importance of violence, because of the importance of squadrismo, I think that... Uh, the Italian fascist regime was much more totalitarian than we usually think. And the reason is that violence, in my opinion, played a major role in defining the futures, the characteristics of the fascist regime, and played also a major role in uh, destroying any possibility of opposition to the fascist regime. So, perhaps, using uh, an Arab war, uh, the Italian fascist regime was an imperfect totalitarian regime. But I think it was much more totalitarian than we usually expect, that violence played a much more important and uh, uh, persistent role throughout the duration of the fascist regime. Um, So, I think that under the aspect of the role played by violence and paramilitaries throughout the duration of the fascist regime. My books can uh, contribute uh, also to debate on totalitarianism uh, in a comparative way.
0: What does the term Ras mean? What does the term Rasismo mean? Can you explain these terms?
1: Yeah. Uh, Ras uh, were basically Ethiopian... uh, uh local uh chiefs and leaders uh they were usually uh leading uh um, ethnic groups in uh, uh the former uh, Ethiopian empires uh it was a term that was used basically as a synonymous of fascist leader uh why because uh fascist leaders and especially leaders of squadrismo as Ethiopian Ra's had an army under their own command. So, fascist leaders uh, were not only political leaders, leaders, but it were also military, or actually paramilitary leaders of uh, armed squads, um, again in the 19, 19, 19, 1922 period. But the term then continued to be used as a synonymous of fascist uh, leader uh, again. Racismo was basically uh, the phenomenon describing the rule of different fascist rights. So with the term of racismo, it's usually a derogatory term. It's a negative term uh, because it, uh, describe the phenomenon of small uh fascist groups under the rule of a fascist leader the ras acting uh throughout Italy so with the term of rasismo we describe the autonomous uh very hostile to discipline uh very uh, um, riotous uh, attitude of fascist leaders in the initial phase of the fascist movement and then of the fascist regime. Uh, Just to clarify, the term was not used and employed by fascists after the Abyssinian War 1935-1936, but it was used much more early on uh, as it was a quite common term uh, in Italian um, uh, language because of the experience of the colonial experience of liberal Italy in Ethiopia, which resulted in uh, usually you know mass the, and very uh, bloody defeats by uh, of the Italian armies by the Ethiopian armies in the late nineteenth uh, century. So there was a term which was pretty common uh, among Italian people and it was used by fascists to describe the autonomous, political and military power of many of their leaders.
0: What kinds of lynchings took place in fascist Italy?
1: Oh, uh, lynchings? Uh, yeah, uh, so, uh, lynchings were pretty common, not, well, common is maybe a little bit like, I mean, they, they took place. Uh, during the um, period before the martial law, uh, people was beaten uh, to death, were killed um, by fascist squads. However, in uh, this was many cases the results of uh, uh, excessive violence. So lynchings were not ritualized. So to speak, as they were. Uh, it's not my cup of tea, but I guess they were in American history. Sometimes, uh, nevertheless, they happen. Um, and again, they were the result of uh, excessive violence, usually performed by the black shirts. Uh, what is in interesting to uh, stress, in my opinion, is that sometimes uh, the black shirts perform excessive of violence, so a violence which was n- not necessary to harm to uh, or even to kill the opponent. They wanted to destroy not only uh, the opponent, but also the body of the, uh, uh, of the political enemy. And this happened in many cases uh, before the March of Rome, but also after the March of Rome. And in my book, I stress a very important important uh, episode, which is the so-called Green Massacre, which happened in December 1922, in which the bodies of uh, some uh, anti-fascist uh, opponents were humiliated and, uh, in many cases, uh, destroyed uh, by the fascists in a very brutal and gruesome uh, way, which uh, uh, was really, really important, uh, also from a symbolic point of view, as it aimed to show the extension and the uh, brutality of fascist violence in this period.
0: What is your book's contribution to the study of political violence?
1: Oh, yeah, Uh, this is surely a broad uh, question. Uh, It's very hard to define what political violence is. There is a lot of debate among historians. It's a general concept. For someone, it's too general. For uh, others, it's perhaps too uh, specific. Um, So my contribution to political violence is, um, again linked to the fact that political violence was a multifaceted uh, phenomenon, at least in fascist Italy. It happened in many ways. Uh, the book shows that along with official state repression, you have black-shirt repression, which was a complementary, but was not a, a, a different kind of, of uh, repression, it was complementary. It, 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 it fit very well and worked very well with official violence. Uh, performed by the state. But the book shows also that political violence was crucial, not only in uh, uh, feeling, uh political opponents and killing political enemies, but in influencing uh, personal attitude among the general public, among ordinary people. It changed the way people approach to uh, ordinary life, so to speak. I mean, fascist violence was important because it was uh, extremely widespread. It was also a low-intensity violence. I'm speaking of the, uh, of the period after the Montreal, of course. Uh, it was a very widespread and low-intensity violence, but it was a violence that was not always performed against well-identified political enemies. It was sometimes performed without any specific reasons against bystanders, against ordinary people. I mentioned uh, the uh, the so-called uh, massacre of Turin in December 1922. In, in that occasion, also ordinary people who were not anti-fascist, were not uh, enemies of fascism, were killed because it was a way to show that fascists. Was omnipresent in the, the political uh, on the political scene. It was uh, pervasive. It was uh, not afraid of mm, anything. It was not afraid of political consequences of criminal consequences. So the book shows that uh, political violence was a multifaceted phenomenon, and in post 1922 Italy was an extremely widespread phenomenon. That, in my opinion, contributed very much to the consolidation of the fascist regime. Not only in political terms, but also because it was able to influence uh, individual uh, individuals' uh, individual uh, consciousness, um, showing the uh, extension uh, of fascist rule and showing. The, Uh, that nobody basically was safe under the fascist regime. And I think that, again, this uh, performative role played by fascist violence in spreading fear and uh, sometimes terror among the general public uh, is a quite underestimated uh, topic and uh, I really hope that it will be investigated further by other scholars, uh, because I think it's really, really important to understand the peculiarities of fascist regime um, throughout its existence.
0: As we bring today's dialogue to a close, can you tell us about where your time and attention have gone since completing this book?
1: Uh, Yeah, uh, as uh, I mentioned in my first answer uh, in this interview, I uh, worked Uh, in the last year um, on armed uh, associations in Europe before uh, the outbreak of the First World War, basically between 1890s and 1914. Um, In that project I, um, uh, I, I worked again on political violence a little bit, on paramilitarism, on armed organizations, And I would like to stress the connection between paramilitaries and uh, democratic processes, uh, which were going on, which were occurring in Europe before the March of War. Uh, Sorry, (laughs) before the outbreak of the First World War. Um, uh, I'm working on a book manuscript uh, on this project, which basically connects different kinds of armed associationism, ranging from shooting clubs, to auxiliary police, to civic militia, to youth uh, armed organizations, connecting these armed associations with processes of democratization, nationalization, transformation which were going on in Europe before the March of Rome. Uh, Again, sorry, before 1914. And uh, again, as I mentioned, I uh, was awarded a new uh, major grant uh, to work. On the gun question uh, in Europe between mid the 19th century to uh, mid the 20th century, uh, because I, I think it's it's interesting to say uh, that uh, before the First World War, Europe was a continent full of guns and full of uh, small fire uh, people had, in many cases, free access to uh, guns. There were no uh, registration. There were no licensing of guns in many European countries. Italy was an exception in this uh, framework. And uh, everything changed with the First World War and the extraordinary measures that uh, European government took to deal with the war and the total mobilization of the conflict. Of course, when we speak of gun question, gun control, gun cultures, uh, immediately the American case came to uh, mind. Uh, It's like, you know, there is a huge scholarship uh, on that. So my idea is basically to uh, see what was going on at that time in Europe. Because as I mentioned, at least before 1914, Europe was a little bit more similar to the US than we usually uh, think and expect. So I move away from uh, fascism, I move away from uh, um, high levels of political violence, but I'm still working on the connections between uh, statehood and uh, violence, uh, with a focus now more on uh, democratic contexts, peaceful contexts, uh, and not uh, only on civil wars or uh, fascist regimes.
0: I wish you the very best with your scholarship ahead. Thank it you. sounds phenomenal and so precious and so important.
1: Thank you very much. I very, very much. Appreciate it.
0: I would like to end by conveying my heartfelt gratitude to you for your eloquence and erudition in the course of our dialogue, and also for all the sacrifice invested in preparing such a remarkable book.
1: Thank you very much. You are very kind, and thank you very much for the opportunity.
0: As we end our dialogue today, I am your host on the new Books and History podcast, Ari Barbalat. Today, I've been in dialogue with Matteo Milan. We've been discussing his newly published book, The Black Shirt's Dictatorship, Armed Squads, Political Violence, and the Consolidation of, Mul- of Mussolini's Regime, published in New York by Routledge, 2022. Thank you.
1: Thank you very much, Adi.